Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. This is the holiday edition of uh, First Thursday. I'm recording this on December the 2nd, uh, and I have a present for all of you. I'm not going to spend the whole podcast talking about mandatory vaccination rules. I promise. In fact, let me just dive into vaccination for no more than five minutes uh, and bring you up to speed on what's happening around the country. Uh, And then we'll get into a a couple of cases, uh, at least a couple, both of which are very, very important. Uh, one dealing with the Brady rule, and a second one dealing with the obligation to share information relevant to a grievance or a potential grievance. But let's start with vaccination. So what's going on out there? We are seeing uh, mandatory vaccination uh, due dates hit all over the country right now. Uh, And we are tending to see the same pattern everywhere with perhaps a couple of exceptions that I'll talk about in just a moment. And the pattern is that we see public safety employees, firefighters, police officers, corrections officers, uh, react to the announcement that an employer is going to have a mandatory vaccination program uh, by making uh, a number of pronouncements that uh, they are going to resist, that they are not going to comply with a mandatory vaccination program. Some of those announcements come from the unions uh, that represent public safety employees. Uh, we've seen, for example, press releases from some unions saying that uh, as many as a 1,000 or even more firefighters or police officers will not become vaccinated. Sometimes the uh, proclamations come from the employees themselves. There's any number of YouTube videos out there that you can find where you have a law enforcement officer or a firefighter uh, saying that he or she, actually I haven't seen a she yet now that I think about it, but saying that the officer uh, will not comply, even upon pain, a pain of forfeiture of their job, that they believe they have a constitutional right not to give in uh, to a mandatory vaccination rule. So that's the initial reaction. And then we find that as we get close to the due date and actually get to the due date, the number of people who have not complied uh, has shrunk almost to the point where it's an invisible number of people who are left. Uh, The most recent figure that I saw uh, on this, this trend came out of San Francisco where we had a lot of early announcements of I'm never going to comply with this mandate uh, to the point where yesterday San Francisco reported that 98.5% of its employees were vaccinated. Uh, Denver, uh, almost 100% of employees are either vaccinated or have an exemption. Uh, The same is true even with some organizations that many thought would be very resistant. So it looks like in the police departments in Chicago and New York, we are seeing a a steady trend towards vaccination. Uh, And in fact, uh, the the people who are not vaccinated in New York don't seem to be the police officers as much as they seem to be the corrections officers and the firefighters. Uh, 
Now, I mentioned that there were some uh, holdouts and uh, where the due date is going to take effect, either take effect today or sometime in the next week or so. Uh, probably the one that's getting the most press is the San Diego Police Department, where we have as many as a thousand police officers who roughly one-third of the workforce who say they are not vaccinated vaccinated and never will get vaccinated and uh, the other really significant place is new york city corrections where less than 50 percent of employees at the latest news report that i see are vaccinated so how go things with the lawsuits because uh, there's lawsuits all over the place. Let me divide them into three categories for you. Uh, the first are the lawsuits over the federal mandates. The second category will be lawsuits based upon constitutional theories like uh, right to privacy and freedom of religion and freedom of speech and things like that. And the third will be lawsuits that are based on whether or not an employer has an obligation to bargain over the mandate. So let's take the easiest one first, uh, the federal mandates. There are uh, several lawsuits around the country challenging different versions of the federal mandates. Uh, the big one, the one that challenges uh, the mandate for large uh, private sector employers around the country, uh, has been transferred essentially to the federal Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, the issue there is not a constitutional one. It's not a bargaining one. The issue in these cases is whether or not the administrative agencies involved and uh, the administrative agency in the case the Sixth Circuit is hearing is OSHA, whether those agencies appropriately use their emergency regulatory authority to pass these rules mandating vaccines uh, without going through the normal draft and comment and rulemaking procedures required by the Federal Administrative Procedures Act. And so far, uh, the federal government is losing all of those cases. Uh, the courts that have weighed in on them, and to my knowledge, there's only two, but uh, we do have the Sixth Circuit yet to come. Uh, the courts that have weighed in on them have said that there is an inadequate justification for not using the normal rulemaking process. We'll see on that. Uh, what about the constitutional lawsuits, the bodily integrity, right to privacy, freedom of speech lawsuits? Well, by my count, there have been in the last year uh, over uh, 75 decisions um, alleging a constitutional right or another, some form of the constitutional rights. I have yet to see a case where an employee has won on the merits of those lawsuits. Uh, it is uh, a clean sweep uh, in terms of the courts as to whether or not an employer has a right to have a mandatory vaccination program, uh, even if you have employees claiming that mandatory vaccinations somehow impair their constitutional rights. Courts are not accepting the arguments of employees. I can't put that any more bluntly. I don't think I've ever seen a body of law um, where there has only been one result like there has been here, and that result has been employees lose. Uh, 
Uh, lastly, and I know I'm going through this fast, but I promised you this is not going to be an all-podcast, all-vaccination uh, show today. Uh, lastly, what about bargaining? There we have a mixed bag. Uh, we have one decision from a court of appeals, that in New Jersey, in a case involving the city of Newark, where the court held that a mandatory vaccination program was not negotiable. And not only that, that there weren't any negotiable effects from a mandatory vaccination program. Uh, I think the court is dead wrong on whether or not there are negotiable effects. Of course there are, right? Uh, because a mandatory vaccination program imp impacts discipline, uh, impacts job security, wages, all of that sort of stuff. But the court was, uh, I think, in such a rush uh, to uphold the employer's right to make the decision to have a mandatory vaccination program that it didn't really even engage in traditional decisional slash effects bargaining analysis. But nonetheless, that's the way the court came out. Uh, if that case has been appealed to the New Jersey Supreme Court, I have not heard that yet. If you know, please do get in touch. I'd love to know that. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have what's going on in Chicago, where uh, the FOP, which represents police officers and detectives in Chicago, where the FOP has uh, filed a grievance challenging the unilateral implementation of a mandatory vaccination program, uh, and a court issued a temporary restraining order uh, restraining the employer from imposing the mandatory vaccination program uh, pending resolution of the grievance. And that appears to be akin to the notion that a mandatory vaccination program, both decisions regarding it and effects, are negotiable. We'll see. It's a trial court opinion. It's not very well thought out without regard to whether you agree with the result. Uh, it's not a, a very detailed opinion. Uh, and we'll see once that case gets into a higher level of court and certainly when it gets into Illinois' labor board, uh, whether or not they will believe that both the decision and the effects are negotiable. And then standing on the other coast is the what I think to be the case that is going to uh, presage how uh, all of these vaccination bargaining cases are going to come out. It is the Regents of the University of California case. It's a case involving AFSCME. And there, California's Public Employment Relations Board ended up holding that the decision to have a mandatory vaccination program is non-negotiable. It is a management right. But the effects of the decision, discipline, uh, other uh, sanctions for non-compliance, all of that sort of stuff, the effects are negotiable. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how these uh, bargaining cases come, come out. They are all over the place. I know, for example, they're in Oregon and Washington. I know they've uh, been filed in uh, places like New York. Uh, we're just not far along with any of those cases to be able to uh, get a clear indication of where the law is going to end up. So that's it. That is your shrink-wrapped version of vaccinations. Now, let's get on to the cases.
First up, uh, I've got to talk to you about this Brady case that came out of uh, Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania Court of Appeals. It's called the Commonwealth Court uh, there in Pennsylvania. Uh, you heard me chuckle a little bit when I started in on this, uh, or hopefully you didn't. But the reason I did chuckle was I read the news reports about this case, uh, and it, it sounded like it was a clean sweep where the district attorney of in Philadelphia prevailed on all of the issues. Uh, and then later in the morning, uh, Rick Polson, a, a lawyer in Philadelphia who's been a speaker for us at LRIS, sent me a copy of the opinion. His firm handled the case for the Fraternal Order of Police there in Philadelphia. Sent me a copy of the opinion, and I read the opinion, and I'll guess what? It wasn't exactly what the newspaper had to say about it. And in fact, I think this is one of the biggest wins for uh, law enforcement officers on the Brady Rule uh, that has ever happened in the courts. So what's going on in this case? Uh, how does this case come about and, and what are the issues? Uh, so uh, we have to go back to 2017 where we had a district attorney by the name of Seth Williams. And he created what he called a police misconduct review committee. And the purpose of the committee was to identify officers whose testimony should be avoided in criminal cases. And he ended up with a list of 66 officers who were placed on what was colloquially called a do not call list. Uh, and this list was distributed to prosecutors uh, who could use it to identify which officers not to call as witnesses during a trial. Of course, this became public very quickly. Uh, there was a headline uh, that read uh, the list of, quote, Philadelphia's 66 prob problem cops. Uh, but that became the status quo. Uh, uh, Philadelphia had this do not call list. Well, that all changed in November of 2017 when Larry Krasner took over as district attorney. He's one of the uh, so-called progressive prosecutors who've been elected around the country uh, over the course of the last few years. Uh, Krasner decided that he needed to uh, revisit the do not call list and expand it significantly. Uh, and uh, in an article that was published in a Philadelphia newspaper, uh, that the headline read that Krasner was seeking to develop a comprehensive list of tainted cops. And Krasner was quoted as saying that the officers who end up on the roster would, quote, almost certainly exceed the 66 on a similar list developed by his predecessor. Krasner went on at some length to say he was compiling a database of infractions uh, and that the officers who ended up on the list would be, quote, too questionable to testify. On many occasions, uh, Krasner has openly voiced his belief that the FOP uh, that the FOP's history of defending police officers who had been punished by the city kept bad cops on the job. Well, when Krasner announces all this, the FOP uh, responds by uh, filing a lawsuit and trying to get an injunction uh, to stop Krasner from creating this expanded list. 
Uh, and that's the issue that ends up going to Philadelphia's, or excuse me, Pennsylvania's uh, Commonwealth Court. And there were two big issues in the case. There were many more than two, but there were two big issues in the case. And the first one was, does Krasner have a right to maintain a list like this? And does the city have to comply with Krasner's request for information from police disciplinary files? Uh, is, is that a, uh, a permissible function of both the prosecution uh, and the city? And uh, the court ended up ruling in Krasner's favor and in the city's favor on that issue. Uh, and here's what the court said, and I'm going to read a little bit from this court's opinion because uh, a little more than I normally do because it really is so important, this case is. Uh, and the court says, and, and I'll tell you when I'm quoting, I'm not yet. The court says, look, we got Brady out there. Uh, Krasner and the city uh, have an obligation to disclose to the defense in a criminal case all exculpatory information. Anything that can affect the result of a criminal case that's in the possession of the prosecution, the prosecution has to disclose it. That's what Brady versus Maryland holds, and that's an opinion that's over 50 years old at this point. And the court says, in addition, uh, this obligation to disclose information under Brady, it extends to potential impeachment information. Uh, Brady, after all, the uh, Pennsylvania court says, uh, holds explicitly that the suppression by the prosecution of evidence favorable to the accused in a criminal case violates the defendant's right to due process, where the evidence is either material to guilt or to punishment. Uh, and Brady material, the court says, uh, has to be turned over without regard to whether the defense even requests the Brady material. It doesn't even have to be a request. It's an automatic obligation to disclose it. Now, let me turn to um, what the court's actual words are in this part of its opinion. Uh, the court says, and I'm quoting, the obligation extends to evidence in the possession of the entire prosecutorial team, including the police. Unquestionably, the DA has a duty to disclose potentially exculpatory evidence, as well as evidence that could be used to impeach prosecution witnesses. Whether that evidence is in the possession of the DA or the city itself, uh, and the city has a derivative duty, the city police department has a derivative duty to assist the DA uh, by providing the DA at his request with information regarding such allegations. Allegations now, not even proven charges. Allegations. So the court ends up saying uh, it was correct for the trial court in this case to dismiss uh, the FOP's lawsuit to the extent that it sought an injunction to prohibit the city from providing information from personnel files and disciplinary files uh, to Krasner. And it was also correct for the trial court to dismiss the claim in the lawsuit that Krasner should not maintain an internal do-not-call list and should not disclose potentially exculpatory or impeachment information to defense counsel. Uh, 
So that's looking really good for Krasner in the city, right? However, the next word in the opinion is however. And you never want to read that when you get an opinion, when you think you're rolling and the judges are going with you. And then you get to that word, however. I mean, your heart just falls into your shoes when you hear that. Uh, and I'm sure that's what Krasner's reaction was to this. Uh, the court goes on to say there's more to this case than whether Krasner can have his list and, and whether the city has an obligation to comply with Krasner's request for materials from disciplinary files. And I'll tell you, uh, quite bluntly, that's all been pretty well settled law for many, many years. Uh, that The Supreme Court hasn't held that, but lots of federal courts, uh, trial courts and courts of appeals and state courts have held that. Uh, that's all pretty rote. But what comes after the however is not pretty rote. And the court says that's not all the FOP was suing about. The FOP was also raising the, a constitutional due process claim on the part of officers. Which officers? Exonerated officers. Those where there were no disciplinary sanctions uh, imposed against the officers. These are officers who do not believe they should have been on the list in the first place. And the FOP's argument is that putting officers who have been exonerated on one of these lists impacts their due process rights and can only be done with the district attorney providing some sort of due process mechanism. Now, another thing about the way these court's opinions are, are written, you normally see this, however, uh, and then you normally see what the court did that I just told you about, which is to say there's this other claim in the case. You can almost predict what the next two words are going to be in a court's opinion when you, uh, when you read it, when you see that structure. And those two words are going to be what Philadelphia's Commonwealth Court said about the FOP's claims. We agree. So what's the court saying? And I'm going to quote. The due process rights asserted by the officers relates to the impropriety of being placed on the do not call list. Neither Brady nor Giglio, which is another one in the series of Brady cases decided by the Supreme Court, neither of those cases eliminate the right of innocent officers to be afforded a meaningful opportunity to argue why they should not be placed on the list or why they should be removed from the list prior to any public disclosure. Whether the officers who've been exonerated of misconduct charges must be given the opportunity to argue why they shouldn't be placed on the do not call list before it's disclosed, that's a separate issue from the district attorney's obligation to disclose Brady information. Back to the court's opinion, quote, an officer may be afforded due process to argue why he should not be on the do not call list without violating Brady. We find that the interests of the officers in their reputations and careers is such that there must be some post-placement, placement on the list, mechanism 
available for an officer to seek removal from the do not call list if the grounds for placement on the list are shown to be lacking in substance. Wow. There's only one other court that has ever held this. It's the New Hampshire uh, Supreme Court, uh, which held that there was such a due process right in a case called Duchesne. Uh, And we will put both uh, this opinion, the one involving Philadelphia, and the Duchesne opinion, we'll put links to those decisions uh, in our show notes. Uh, But for many years, a decade almost, Duchesne, the New Hampshire case, stood alone for the proposition that officers have a due process right to a hearing before they can be finally placed on this list or the right, a due process right to challenge their continued placement on the list. So what is going to happen? What what is going to be the future of this Philadelphia case? Well, the case was decided in a bit of an unusual procedural posture in that uh, the trial court dismissed the FOP's uh, complaint. Now, what that means is nobody has had an opportunity to develop a factual record. Uh, The complaint was dismissed on the grounds that it simply did not state a valid cause of action. So what the appeals court has done with its decision is to send the case back down to the trial court to flesh out what the facts are and to develop what sort of due process mechanism must be put in place to protect the 14th Amendment rights of officers. So this is a case you definitely, definitely want to track. Uh, By the way, it was not a unanimous opinion. Uh, My recollection is there were nine judges who weighed in on this case, and seven of the nine joined the majority opinion. And in all likelihood, you can expect Krasner to try to get the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court to overturn uh, the Court of Appeals decision. But I'll tell you, uh, the Court of Appeals decision looks pretty constitutionally sound to me. Uh, So we'll see. Important, important case. Uh, And I'll tell you, this is a mechanism claiming a due process right that is associated with the officer's reputation and not just reputation in general, but reputation with respect to her or his career, due process is the way to attack the unfair placement of somebody on a Brady list. Now to our second important case of the month, And this one is not like the Pennsylvania case in that it's important because it's kind of staking out new grounds, uh, the Pennsylvania case was. I mean, we did have the New Hampshire case, but there wasn't any follow-up to it. This one is important because it emphasizes some points that I think are not understood as well as they should should be. And uh, this concerns the rights of both sides, management and labor, to get information from each other that is relevant to the uh, a, a, relevant to either a grievance or a potential grievance. So this uh, this case comes out of New York, uh, and corrections officers who work for the state of New York are represented by 
uh, get ready, this is quite a mouthful, the New York State Correctional Officers and Police Benevolent Association. I will call it the association uh, for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, So uh, the Department uh, of Corrections began an investigation into a sergeant, uh, somebody by the name of Eric Rakoff, who worked at the Sullivan Correctional Facility. And the investigation centered around an incident where an inmate was injured during an escort that Rakoff supervised. Uh, The department issued what's called a notice of discipline, an NOD. Uh, This may be familiar to some of you, but not to others. A notice of discipline is basically a notice that the employer intends to take disciplinary action, usually it's specified, against a particular employee. In this case, the discipline that was being contemplated was a 90-day suspension for Raycom. So the department issues the notice of discipline, and the association responds by saying, we'd like to see a copy of Raycoff's internal affairs investigation. And by the way, we have filed a grievance challenging this notice of discipline. Uh, And that's the way the system works for the association's uh, contract, is grievances are actually filed before final discipline is imposed. Uh, Before the department answers that request to uh, see a transcript of the interview, the association sends another missive to the department saying, we want more. Uh, What is more? More includes a video of the incident, a copy of all use of force packets that were completed by the corrections officers who uh, were involved in the transport, the inmates' injury and medical reports, all draft reports completed by the investigator, uh, as well as a variety of other documents. Uh, The department refused to provide any of the documents. The departments uh, said, we're just saying no. Why? Because you haven't demanded to arbitrate the grievance yet. You can, said the department, you can come on in and you can watch the video, but there is not going to be any, and I'm quoting, mandated discovery in this matter. And Uh, The department cites a decision from a court in New York that it says stood for the proposition that unions could get information from employers about grievances if the grievances were non-disciplinary in nature, but they didn't have the same rights to get information about disciplinary grievances. That's what the employer's position was here. Uh, And Uh, This goes before New York's Public Employment Relations Board and PERB uh, says, employer, you're just simply wrong. There is no distinction between disciplinary and non-disciplinary grievances in terms of the obligation to share information about grievances. Look, says PERB, part of the obligation to collectively bargain in good faith is the obligation on both parties' sides to exchange information about matters that are relevant to the bargaining process. And grievances are relevant to the bargaining process. And that means that both sides, subject to some limitations that I'm going to talk about in just a moment, both sides have the obligation to turn over, upon request, 
any information that they believe is relevant to the disciplinary process. Um, and uh, Perb says, we're not buying the employer's argument that that obligation to share information only exists when the union has requested arbitration of the grievance. In fact, this obligation to share information even applies before a grievance is filed, when all the union is doing is looking for information that will help it make an informed decision as to whether or not to request arbitration over a grievance. Now, I mentioned that there are some constraints on this obligation to share information relevant to a grievance. Uh, let me read to you from uh, the uh, PERB's opinion. Uh, PERB says there are three primary limitations on the obligation to share information. Reasonableness, which includes the burden on the responding party, relevancy, and necessity. And uh, the duty, uh, if one of those three exceptions doesn't apply, this duty may even apply, may even prevail over confidentiality rights that individual employees may have under a state public records law. And I'll say parenthetically here, there's some pretty well-developed case law from around the country uh, that simply because a matter is exempt from disclosure under a public records law doesn't mean that there is no obligation on the part of the employer to provide that information to the union. Uh, this comes up frequently. When the union is, uh, has, is filing a disciplinary grievance, let's say it's for conduct unbecoming, and the union says to the employer, we want to see all instances uh, where you have imposed discipline for conduct unbecoming over the last three years. And we want to see the complete disciplinary files in those cases and, uh, and that, that's not limited to bargaining unit members. We want to see where you've disciplined supervisors. And labor boards and courts have said, you know, that material may well be exempt from disclosure under a public records law, but employers still have to turn it over uh, in a bargaining environment because the information is relevant to the bargaining process. Or as Perb says here, and I'm quoting, the duty to exchange information may, where appropriate, prevail over confidentiality rights under statutes other than the Collective Bargaining Act. So uh, where does the case go from there? Well, it's not over because the department is saying, look, the association's request isn't reasonable. And there's two reasons. First reason is, we have a past practice where the union hasn't requested this information. So we don't have an obligation to turn it over until the union bargains for a change in the past practice. Uh, PERB doesn't buy that argument. Uh, PERB says, look, the, the past practice doesn't excuse the failure on the part of the employer to provide the information here. We don't know why the union uh, did not request this information in the past, uh, but, quote, in short, the association's acquiescence to an arguably improper practice in the past doesn't preclude it from challenging that practice as unlawful at this time. End of quote. 
So second argument that the employer makes is this is just way too burdensome. We are the New York Department of Corrections. We have over 10 employees who uh, part of their job function is processing these sorts of requests. Um, the department t uh, takes the position before the court that it gets approximately 500 requests for disciplinary information every year, uh, 350 to 380 of which concern this bargaining unit. And the obligation to go through all of those files and redact information uh, where necessary, this just makes the union's request unreasonable. PERB is having none of that argument either. Uh, PERB ends up finding that uh, this, the request by the association did not place an undue burden on the department. Um, in all of these cases, uh, PERB ends up saying the department has to review the requested information, um, but it hasn't explained why this builds in too much cost or too much delay uh, into the whole system. Therefore, turn it over. And that is the way labor boards approach these requests for information. I've been talking to you in this case about a request for information that is relevant to the grievance process. But the request for information, where you see it live and breathe an awful lot, is in the bargaining context, where one side says to the other, we want to know what jurisdictions you think are comparable. Not only that, we want to know how you're analyzing total compensation. We want to uh, know what elements of total compensation uh, go into your calculations. We want to see the formulas that you use for total compensation. Not only that, we want to know how you are analyzing the cost of living. And we want to know if there are any other arguments that you are relying on uh, for your position with respect to bargaining issues. And labor boards, when they see those sorts of requests, they they look at a union, they look at management, and they say, whoever the recipient is of that request, turn the information over. Labor boards want to see a full and free exchange of information. They don't want to see anybody playing hide the ball on grievances or in bargaining. This, is, uh, this New York case, I think, is a very good reminder uh, of this tendency on the part of labor boards to say, as I've said twice already, just turn it over. I want to end this podcast by doing something that I've done uh, several times in the past, and that is to do a end-of-year review of uh, developments in a certain area of the law, whatever it might be. I've done this, for example, on uh, the Weingarten rule, the right to representation and disciplinary interviews. What I'd like to do now is just cover what's gone on in 2021 uh, under the rule of Garrity versus New Jersey. So let's, let's talk about uh, Garrity first, just briefly, and then I'll get into some of the cases. So the rule in Garrity uh, versus New Jersey, and this, this is another case that's over 50 years old. This is 54 years old. The rule's pretty straightforward. If a governmental employer uses its disciplinary authority to compel its employees to answer questions or to provide a written statement, 
and tells the employee the equivalent of talk or you'll be fired. You know, if you if the employer is compelling a statement upon pain of possible job forfeiture, then neither the employee's answers um, or statement or the fruits of the answer or statement can be used to criminally prosecute the employee. Garrity is a rule of criminal immunity. Uh, if an employer use public employer, and it applies to all public employees, not in Garrity's police case, but it applies to firefighters and corrections officers and sworn and non-sworn and teachers. And one of the most important Garrity cases out there involves a garbage truck driver for the uh, city of Evanston, Illinois. Uh, so it applies to all public employees. Uh, and what Garrity says is, you know, look, if you use your authority to compel these employees to give statements, uh, threatening them with possible job loss, you pay a price. And the price is you can't use the statements or the fruits of the statements in a subsequent criminal prosecution of the employee. So what's happened in 2021 under the Garrity rule? Uh, and uh, I think, well, let me give you the bottom line first, not much, uh, a little bit, not much. Um, but I think the lack of a development shows the maturity of the Garrity rule. We've had a lot of Garrity decisions in the last 10 years. And the law is now becoming, I think, pretty well settled. Um, but we do, still do see uh, some problems, some areas where that need to be cleaned up. So uh, first of all, let's say you've got a compelled statement out there in the ether. Let's say there is a police officer who, or a firefighter who's been compelled to give a statement in an internal affairs interview, what is the prosecution's burden of proving that it didn't use the statement or the fruits of the statement in a subsequent criminal prosecution? So uh, the case that I'm going to talk about is one called State versus Ward. Uh, it's from the Georgia Court of Appeals. We'll put this decision in the show notes as well. Uh, this is a former police officer in Georgia, of course, who cited Garrity in successfully challenging uh, his conviction for child molestation and a crime in Georgia that's called enticing a child for indecent pur uh, purposes. Uh, he gave an internal affairs interview, and two prosecutors admitted that they had read transcripts of the officer's internal affairs interview. And I've got to say, when I read those sorts of words in a court opinion, I just shake my head and say, no, no, no. There are decisions uh, that go up to the state Supreme Court level, warning prosecutors, stay away from that stuff. Don't look at internal affairs files. And in particular, don't look at an internal affairs interview. If you do, you're risking having a conviction uh, dismissed or a conviction overturned. And that's exactly what happens in this case. Uh, here's some words from the courts. Uh, the prosecutors in this case were unaware of their burden not to use any information they learned from the Garrity protected statements to influence their investigation or trial preparation. They were unaware of Garrity? Remember I just said, Garrity is 54 years old. 
Prosecutors should be aware of this case. Okay, back to the court. Quote, for example, one prosecutor testified that during her preparation for trial, while she understood the contents of the officer's interview were inadmissible, she didn't understand her duty not to use the fruits of the interview. The other prosecutor testified similarly as to her understanding of the issues. Thus, the prosecutors did not make an effort to quarantine the information uh, to ensure that their investigation was not tainted by protected statements. Uh, and uh, once again, good reminder as to what the law is. Uh, I mean, there's a, a several really important Garrity or Garrity-type cases. Sometimes these are called Castigar cases after another Supreme Court uh, opinion that describes the hearing that is necessary when you have a compelled statement out there. There's been important cases like uh, decided along these lines for a long time, maybe the most important of which is United States versus Oliver North. Yes, that Oliver North, uh, the presidential assistant who was convicted of basically lying to Congress about uh, what was then called the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, his conviction was overturned because of, in essence, a Garrity slash Castigar violation. And the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, Federal Court of Appeals, held in, in Oliver North's case that when you have a compelled statement, uh, the prosecution or the court must go uh, line by line, topic by topic, word by word, through the trial testimony and the grand jury testimony and be convinced by a preponderance of the evidence that, and I'm quoting, no use whatsoever was made by the prosecution uh, of the compelled statement either through directly alluding to the compelled statement or through questioning witnesses about information derived from the compelled statement. So a Georgia case, not making new law here, but apparently this, these basic principles of Garrity did not penetrate into uh, the minds of these two Georgia prosecutors. Uh, next up, an Alaska case. This is from the Alaska Supreme Court. An interesting question. I've never seen this litigated before. The question is, does the employee's attorney have to be advised of Garrity immunity? Or is it enough to tell the employee? So first of all, what sort of advisement are we talking about? There's a split in the courts as to whether or not uh, an employer has an obligation to give what are commonly called reverse Garrity warnings. You are ordered to answer our questions. If you fail to do so, you could be subject to discipline up to and including termination, and your statements and the fruits of your statements won't be used against you in a subsequent criminal prosecution. Those are called reverse Garrity warnings. Uh, the majority rule is that an employer does have an obligation to give those warnings to employees. Uh, and I think without regard to where the courts in your state stand on that issue, it's just simply a good practice for an employer to do it. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get caught in an accidental Garrity uh, violation. So the, the question in the Alaska case is, 
do these warnings, if, if the employee is represented by counsel, do these warnings not only have to be given to the employee, but also to the attorney? And uh, the Alaska Supreme Court says, give me a break. Of course, you don't have to tell the employee, uh, or excuse me, the employee's attorney. If you tell the employee, that is good enough. And here's what the court says. I'm quoting. A rule that the state must advise its employees that their answers may not be used against them criminally before it can fire them for refusing to answer is clear, simple, and fair. It minimizes confusion and prevents the state from exploiting the ambiguity created by its dual roles of employer and law enforcement agency. But here the court said... That's exactly what the state did. It advised the employee of his immunity, not once, uh, but twice. Uh, back to the court's opinion. Quote, providing notice of Garrity immunity alongside the advance written notice of the compelled interview, i.e. reverse Garrity warnings, would avoid confusion to public employees and forestall any possibility of a successful challenge to a Garrity notification's effectiveness. But here, the state advised the employee of the Garrity immunity and the consequences of refusing to answer, and the employee affirmed he understood those advisements and has made no claim of confusion. The court says there's no obligation to notify the employee's attorney if you've given that sort of advice to the employee themselves. All right. Uh, Next case, and I think this will be the last case that I'm going to, or it's a collection of two cases that I'm going to talk about, another one from Georgia and one from uh, New Jersey. And uh, these, these cases stand for the same basic principle that Garrity immunity only, apply, that only applies to compelled statements that might produce incriminating answers. So... What do I mean by that? Let's look at the facts of these two cases. The first one, the Georgia case called Evans versus State. This one involves a school principal, remember Garrity applies to all public employees, who was convicted of RICO violations, racketeering violations, for allowing students to cheat on standardized tests so the school could meet testing uh, targets. And the principal made the argument that Garrity required the dismissal of her indictment, the overturning of her conviction, because she was required to give compelled statements to investigators. And the Georgia Court of Appeals said, no, nobody used those statements in the criminal prosecution. Nobody used the fruits of those statements. Garrity doesn't mean that you can't be compelled to give statements. You can. That's exactly what Garrity uh, requires. What Garrity means is that those statements cannot thereafter be used to prosecute the employee. The New Jersey case, kind of very similar facts. Uh, this is a case where the employer subpoenaed a disciplined police officer to testify in his case in chief, in the employer's case in chief, in the officer's disciplinary appeal. So, uh, Witness number one in the, uh, this is New Jersey, so it's not disciplinary arbitration. It's kind of a, a quasi-civil service board uh, or public safety board. 
so witness number one is going to be the employee, parenthetically. Would an arbitrator allow the employer to subpoena the disciplined employee in its case in chief? Most arbitrators would say no. There's a split of opinion among arbitrators. Most would say no, but we're not in arbitration here because we're in New Jersey. So we're in this kind of quasi-police board uh, sort of format. Uh, and the, uh, the court ends up saying that Garrity just simply doesn't apply in these circumstances. Uh, the, uh, when an employee is compelled to give a statement, that doesn't mean that there's blanket immunity for uh, the statement uh, because uh, the immunity, to begin with, only applies in a criminal case. And we're not in a criminal case here. The court has to consider whether or not this statement is being used in an environment where there are potential criminal sanctions. And not only that, it doesn't imply, even if we were in a criminal proceeding, Garrity doesn't apply to everything that an employee says. It instead applies only to statements that are potentially incriminatory. Um, incriminating. I think I just made up a word, didn't I? Incriminatory. Shame on me. Um, and the court ends up saying that what you have to do in those sorts of circumstances is the court, uh, trial court has to go through the statement and divide the wheat from the chaff, the self-incriminating from the non-self-incriminating. Um, and that all starts with the employee raising the privilege in the first instance, and then the court just has to do a reasonable job of going through the questions and making sure that and the answers, and making sure whether or not there's anything incriminating. And if there's not, if it's just a question about the time of day, then Garrity is, would not apply even if we were in a criminal case. But we're not in a criminal case, so it really doesn't matter. So uh, there's going to be a longer discussion of these year-to-date Garrity cases in our newsletter uh, that will be upcoming public safety labor news. Uh, I go on for about, I think, maybe four pages, uh, but those are the highlights. So with that, it's time for me to close and time for me to close out 2021 with my uh, really sincerest wishes for all of you that 2022 is better and less crazy than 2021 has been. And uh, to all of you, uh, be safe out there, okay? This is Will Aitchison signing off.